Some of you have probably heard the expression that sometimes there's just more to it than what you can see, right? You know, there's more to it than what, can meet, what meets the eye. And, uh, you know, when we approach our passage for today, I think that saying is certainly true. We're going to be in Jesus' fifth statement from the cross today. It's found in John's Gospel, the 19th chapter. I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 19. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find one underneath your seat. And if you're using one of those, the, the text is on page 922. 922. But we're in John's Gospel, the 19th chapter, verses 28. And we're going to look through all the way through verse 30, though. Next week, we're going to be actually looking specifically at verse 30. We've been in this series, though, as Bill alluded to in his prayer, uh, leading up to Easter, and it's called Echoes. And we've been looking at Jesus' statements from the cross. We have seven recorded statements of Jesus from the cross, and we've been looking at those to kind of unpack how they continue to speak to us today. They, they, are, they are words, if you will, from Christ that spoken from the cross, continue to reverberate down through history, and they still have spiritual significance to us today. And we've been kind of steadily chopping away through those and taking them chronologically as they would have been stated from the cross. And, you know, Jesus started out with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he went on as, as there was an exchange between a couple of the thieves that one of them came to express faith in Christ. And Jesus tells him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then he looks at his mother and he says, Mother, behold your son, referring to the Apostle John. And then last week we looked specifically at the statement where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And today we come to one of those statements where in many ways we could just kind of skip over it. Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. But it's one of those moments where this statement of there's, there, there's much more there than meets the eye is absolutely true. Because the next statement is Jesus simply says, I'm thirsty. I thirst. In fact, in, in, in Aramaic and Hebrew, it's a single word. He just issues a single word that says, I thirst. Let, let's look at it together in context. And then uh, uh, I want to draw some thoughts for us so that we see more than what is apparent to us at first. Look what it says as it begins in verse 28. And after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So on the surface of this, right, it just looks like Jesus is thirsty. You know, I mean, when we kind of unpack his experiences so far, one of the conclusions we might draw is that the last time that Jesus had anything to drink was the night before. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When you take all the four gospel accounts of the cross and you put this all together, this statement is issued right around 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. Jesus has been on the cross for as much as six hours at this point in time. The last time we know that he had a drink was at the Passover meal the night before when he shared a cup with his disciples. We know from Mark, Matthew and Mark's account that when Jesus got out to the place of the crucifixion, one of the first things they did was offer him a drink. But it was, it was a special kind of drink. They, you know, back in the days of Jesus, they, 
they didn't do wine the same way that we do today because wine was like, like drinking water. The, 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 you know, the Romans and the Greeks, all that, they had figured out that, that water sometimes breeds contamination. So they had a real preference for running water or water they caught from rain or waters that came up through the ground and filled their cisterns. But, but for other kinds of waters, they, they, they knew that like if they, put, if they tried to wash out a wound with water as opposed to using wine, it was far more likely to get infected. So they knew that there was something wrong with the water. So one of the ways that they made the water suitable to drink was that they would mix it with wine. And so the wine that was served in those days, at least at, at the very best wine, would be one part water and one part wine. The vast majority of people, if you were kind of like in the middle class, you would drink like one part wine, three parts water. For the really poor people, like the kind of wine that's offered up by the Roman soldiers to Jesus on the cross here in the passage that we're looking at, that would have been what they would have called sour wine. When the wine started to come, become bitter and that kind of stuff, they would mix it in with some other stuff, and that's what they gave out kind of like as the rank-and-file stuff. That's like buying the cheapest bottled water you can get, right, you know, at the, at the box store, you know, kind of idea. But when they first got there, they offered Jesus wine mixed with a, with a, with a concoction, if you will, that would have basically just knocked them out. It was like a painkiller, like a sedative. You know, they would mix it with myrrh. Some of your translations use the word gall. And, and what they did is they took wine and they mixed it with some other ingredients that they had figured out. And most commentators think there's things like wormwood and some other stuff. And when he took it, he would have basically just become loopy. And he wouldn't have felt the pain near as much when he got crucified. And so when he first gets there, they offer him that, and Jesus rejects it. Because he's going to experience all of this with all of his faculties. But here, at the very end, Jesus is thirsty. Makes sense, right? Jesus has been hanging on a cross, in the sun, in the Middle East, for six hours. Maybe hasn't had water for the better part of 18 to 20 hours, maybe even longer. And he's just thirsty. And, and so he asks for a drink. He says, I'm thirsty. Now, there's a lot of different dynamics going on here. Some of this might have been Jesus trying to kind of wet his lips a little bit so that this next cry that's going to come out in verse 30 can be spoken with, with great strength. You know, it is finished, and he's going to scream that. We're going to look at that next week. But for the most part, Jesus is just thirsty, physically. But there's always more than meets the eye at times. And in John's case, this is particularly true. You've you got to remember John is the last living apostle, right? All the rest of them have been killed off or have died of natural causes. John is right. His gospel is the last of the four gospels to be written. He's writing at the end of the first century, some 60, 70 years after Jesus has died. And, and one of the dynamics that was going on was that Christianity was beginning to spread out into different cultures. We see that through the book of Acts. And so people were beginning to do what we still do today. They began to syncretize religions. Let's take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of mix it together. And so one of the dominant thoughts that most people have been raised on as believing was true was that matter was evil, physical stuff was evil, and spirit was good. And so when they come along and then Jesus becomes flesh, they say, nah, he can't really be flesh. 
because flesh is bad. We're, we're trying to get our spirits out of the body. You know, we don't want God coming into a body. And so they started to struggle with all this stuff. And, and what emerged in the church was something that we've come to call Gnosticism, where they believe that Jesus looked like a man, he acted like a man, but he was actually just a spirit. And John, at the very end of his life, writing this gospel, wants to make it crystal clear Jesus is physical. He's not just a spirit. He just doesn't look like he's been crucified, but he's a real man with real flesh and skin. He, he's got flesh. And, and the reason why is because John knows that without flesh and blood, there is no salvation. Because in God's economy, the way God's designed to work things, that without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if Jesus really isn't a man, therefore he doesn't really have any blood, there isn't any blood that's spilt that actually creates any forgiveness, and you and I still are dead in our sins. So here in a very subtle way, John tells us, none of the other guys tell us this, but John tells us, you know what, Jesus really was physically here. It wasn't just a mirage, he wasn't a ghost, <laughs> you know, he didn't... He was here, he was flesh and blood, he was born, he grew up, he lived, he ate, he walked, he breathed, he did all that stuff. And he says all of that through, I am thirsty. That Jesus really did, as the Son of God, come down out of heaven, live a life, and die on a cross so that you and I actually have the possibility of being forgiven. And so his physical thirst really matters. But there's another sense, too, that, that I think John's trying to get at. And, and some of this, again, as you piece it all together, there's this little phrase in here that says, Jesus, knowing that all things had been fulfilled, right? All things had been accomplished. And, and I think there's a sense here where, where John's trying to indicate to us that there was a spiritual thirst going on. You know, we know that at noontime, on Good Friday, darkness came over the land. And from noon until 3 o'clock, there was darkness on the land, the absence of God. God had withdrawn himself from the presence of Jesus. Why? <laughs> because Jesus has become sin for us. And God can't be in the presence of sin. And so God has rejected Jesus. And so it's in these moments that most scholars believe that Jesus is actually experiencing hell. The absence of God. And so as this all kind of comes to fruition, we see Jesus at the end of this, knowing that this has all been fulfilled, those three hours, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the, 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 the experience of hell has just been bombarding Jesus. Why he's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It just pulls this statement out of him. And when Jesus knows it's all done, that the veil is ready to be torn, opening up our access to be in the presence of God, Jesus says, man, I, I'm ready to go home. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. You know, some of you are familiar with the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14, um, where he's told a, a parable of the story about the rich man and Lazarus, right? Some of you remember this story. It's a picture of heaven and hell. On, on earth, the rich man, is, he dresses in fine linen every day, and he eats like a pig every single day. Lazarus is, is sick. He lays outside the guy's gate, 
begging for the food that falls from his tumble things, the stuff they're going to throw away, and he's so weak he's defenseless to keep the dogs away who are looking, licking at his sores. And then the flip side of that is that in the next life, Lazarus, the poor guy, is leaning on the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man is suffering in Hades, in hell. And the imagery there is you've got the rich man crying out to Abraham, send Lazarus with just a drip of water, just a little bit of water on the end of his, tongue, of his finger, just to touch my tongue because I'm, I'm dying here in flame. So Jesus said, I, I've been in hell, right? I, I've experienced the flame. I, I'm ready to go home. I'm, and in that imagery of, of, of the rich man, you know, he, he says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty from anything for God, from God. Just to, just a passage. I, I think Jesus, in many ways, is emulating what comes out to us in Psalm 42. We're going to pull that up on the screen for you to see. I, I think Jesus is, is, is living this out for us on the cross. He says, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? I, I think if Jesus had that, he would have said, man, I, I'm thirsty, you know. I'm thirsty for the living God. When can I go home? And I, I, I think he's thirsty spiritually. He, he's ready to go home. He's done everything that he was supposed to do when he came here, and he's ready to go home. He's experienced Humanity, all the temptations, all the trests, all the trials. He's been faithful. He's been obedient. He has offered himself on this cross as a sacrifice for the sin of all humanity, both before him and after him for all time. He's paid the price. He's experienced the wrath of God. He's done his job. And he says, I'm ready to go home. I'm thirsty. (laughs) Like the deer pants for the water, man. I'm ready to go home and sit down with my father and enjoy the living God. But there's one less reality I want you to see out of this. I told you it was more than meets the eye here, right? You know, and, and, and there's one less. I think there's a sense here that Jesus has a scriptural thirst. I think he has a scriptural thirst. What do you, and, and that's really not great terminology because we just kind of unpack this a little bit, right? You know, sometimes the words of Jesus really, you know, um, kind of draw us into a... For, to a certain place, and so what I what I want you to, you know what, it's always better when I follow my notes. I want to I want to ask you just before we move on to this idea of thirsting from God, what does it really take to thirst for God? You know, I, you know, I was thinking about this this week, and, and say, you know, how, how do you and I cultivate a thirst for God? So this this passage of scripture that we just read, that we're, we're like a deer that's longing for water. I can remember when I was in seminary, one of the part-time jobs I did to put money on the table so we could live was I, I cut grass for this guy. And there's nothing like cutting grass behind a push mower in like 98 degree weather, you know. And, and I can remember sometimes we'd be going for, we, you know, we'd do like six houses in the neighborhood. You know, we'd been cutting grass for two and a half, three hours. And, and, and you know, I, I might as well just have, have, have worn a swimming suit. I was just totally wet, you know, inside and out. And, and thank God there were 7-Elevens on every corner, you know. And, and when you'd walk in, it's like, the debate was, am I going to get two or three big gulps, you know, you're just 64 out, you're just filling them up and sucking them down, and you're really, th- how, how do we do that spiritually? And, and I just want to give you, I, I don't know if these are very helpful to you, but here, here are the two things that work for me, and, and, and I try to p- replace them 
some memory banks for me. One of the things that really sometimes stirs my thirst for God is just simply to marvel at God's creation. There are times when you just, you know, you, for my birthday in January, Christina took me up to, we went up to Maine for just an overnight right on the coast and literally just sitting, standing on the balcony, it's freezing out and just looking at the ocean and it's, it's just incredible. I was watching a Planet Earth show or something the other day and they were featuring a plant that actually grows almost 200 feet in a few days to get to the top of the tree canopy so it could actually get sunlight in just a couple of days. It's this marvelous stuff. You think, you know, there's no way this stuff just happened by. And, just, and for me, it just, it makes me just long more for God. The other thing is to think about all the things in my life that I have absolutely no control over. I don't know about you, that may make you panic or anxious, but it makes me thirst for God. To think, you know, that I could, that, that any one of us could be loading up our groceries into the trunk of our car at the local grocery store and somebody could hit us and it'd be all over. Nothing we can do about it. As hard as I try to love my wife, she could wake up tomorrow morning and decide, you know what, I hate you now. That's it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the most frustrating thing about relationships, right? You can't control what the other person thinks and feels, right? You, you want to, you want to influence it, but you can't control it. You think about it, it can really make you paranoid about all the things in your life that are outside of your control. But for me, it makes me thirst for God. And, and, and I don't know where you are, but you have to find those things in your own life that make you thirst for God. Because if you're trying to live off of somebody else's thirst, well, my kids are really into this, or my parents, or my, or my uh, spouse, or my grandparents, or my neighbor, or whatever. If you're trying to live on somebody else's thirst, forget it. You're not going to stay thirsty very long. All right. Now back to my notes. This idea of, of, of scriptural thirst. Now, look at the statement that Jesus makes. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, comma, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. So I I, want to unpack this just a little bit. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross. All the big pieces of being the Messiah have already been fulfilled. Right? You know, he, he has... He is, um, you know, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, called out of Egypt, living a perfect life, hasn't lost any of his disciples, all these kinds of pieces, you know, offered himself up as the, as the, as the paschal lamb, the suffering servant who's going to die on the cross, and etc. There are things that are still going to happen to him, like the piercing and the blood and the water and all those kinds of things. Jesus has dealt with all the big pieces of being the Messiah and he's hanging on the cross and he's saying, you know what? I remember saying back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, you know, I, I don't believe that I've come to, to condemn the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And there's not a single jot or tilde that's going to pass until it's all completed. You know, it, 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 and, and so here's Jesus. Is there any little thing left that I haven't gotten to? And he said, you know what, there's that passage out of Psalm 69, you know, where, where he, 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 it refers to the fact that his mouth is 
parched and, he, and he's thirsty and he cries out for thirst. I think we had that. I, I skipped it by. And he says, I'm weary from crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And then again, it, it picks up in the next verse, uh, verse 21, I think it is. He says, instead, they give me gall for my food and for my thirst, they give me vinegar to drink. And Jesus said, you know, there's, there's stuff, a little bit of stuff left I got to take care of. Here's how I interpret this. Jesus didn't want, Jesus wanted us to have absolute confidence in the promises of God. It, it wasn't just a matter of, well, he got the big stuff. Jesus wanted us to be 100% confident in the promises of God. And not even the smallest little promise got overlooked or unfulfilled. He wanted us to have absolute trust in the promises of God. That's why it says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that in Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God are yes. You know, and um, it's powerful stuff for us. Now, here, here's why this is important, okay? God's power in our lives is released based upon our trust in his promises. Now, if you're going to write anything down from this sermon, that's what you should write down on the back of your thing, whether you put it in your Bible, type it up in your notes in your phone, or do whatever. If you're going to write anything down today, this, God's power in our lives is released by our trust in his promises and his truth in the scriptures. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he is absolutely committed to making sure that there is no reason why you and I can't have absolute trust in the truth and in the promises of God. It's, 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 it's powerful stuff. He, he could have looked at all these other different things, but he, he's thinking, all right, you know, he, he, all the other stuff's been accomplished, but there's one thing left. There's one thing left. He said, man, you know what? I'm thirsty. And he wants us to be able to see and experience all of that. And, and here's... Here's the application I want to make today related to this. You know, th there's a lot of things I get in terms of what we struggle with in our spiritual lives. I get why we struggle with pride. I get why we struggle with being angry, struggle to forgive people who are really hurt. I, I, I get that. I, you know, I, I get being text, tempted sexually and all those kinds of, all the different things that come with it. But the, the thing I don't really get is why so many believers are just satisfied to be biblically illiterate. The number one instrument that they have to release the power of God in their lives is the word of God, the promises of God, the truth of God. And, and they have no interest in really figuring it out. You know, they're, they're, I mean, you think about it. I brought a little stack here. I'm going to do a little redecorating here so I can make it display. You know, you, 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 can read, you can read it in the Christian Standard Bible. You can read it in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You can read it in the NIV. You can read it in the New American Standard. You can buy a Bible that has eight, eight uh, different translations on one page. So you can just pick what you like. You know, you can read the same thing eight different times in eight different ways and get more meaning out of it. You can read it on your phone. How many of you have a Bible app on your phone? 
You can read it in English, French, Spanish, German, Danish. The list can just go on and on, right? And then if that is not enough, you can pull up your computer, and there's all kinds of great resources you can go to, right? And I do not get it. I do not get why so many believers are content to get more of their theology from Christian music than they are from the Word of God. Or why so many believers will read the daily bread every single day but never crack a Bible. I don't get it. I don't get it. It, it, Here is Jesus hanging on the cross, making sure that every box is checked off so that you and I can be absolutely convinced that God's word is reliable, God's promises are true, and yet somehow or another we're just willing to live with biblical illiteracy. I don't know what's really in there. I can't figure it out. We're more content to listen to somebody on television who's going to take the world's positive thinking kind of stuff and wrap it up in some bunch of spiritual jargon and sell it to us. Or somebody's going to promise us that if we we send it 100 bucks and we get a prayer veil that goes over our head, we're going to get all that God asks for us when Jesus hung on the cross to make sure it's absolutely, that we can be absolutely confident that what we have in our hands is what we can build our lives on. And, and God's power is released in our lives by our trust in his promises. And trust is spelled O-B-E-Y. And yet many of us, we, we want, well, where's the power of God in my life? And yet we never really want to study the promises. We never want to study the truth. And then we struggle to obey it, I think God's got far more patience with that. And, you know, and I could go, I mean, it, it's, you know, we, we go to Rwanda and hear these guys that they don't even, you know, the first year we got there, they got Bibles and, 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 they're, and they're missing whole sections because, you know, their bindings broken. you know, First and Second Samuel just fell out one day when they're walking down the path and, and, and they don't have that anymore, you know? And, and you could ask Christina, they're, they're, she's meeting with women and they're, they're just looking at her with these longings and says, Tell us what is true in the eyes of God, because they got no way to figure it out. They can't hardly read, and they don't have Bibles. And yet, here we are. We got more Bibles than we can. And, and many of us are just content to say, you know what? I'll get a little bit on Sunday mornings. I'll just listen to a little bit of Christian music, and 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 and, and, and I don't get it. And. And the real question I think I have for, for us today as we think about how the word of God, the statements of Christ echo down through the centuries to us today is it's really the question, are we really hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness? Are we really hungry and thirsty for the righteousness that God has displayed to us in his word? That he has defined for us in his word. That Jesus made absolutely incredible effort to make sure that we would have 100% confidence in the word of God. Are you really thirsty for it? And, and if that's not our case, there, there, you know, all the rest of it is just really going to be a, a, an incredible struggle for you. And God's word seeks to be crystal clear. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no other way to be saved. Those who trust in the Lord, you know, and acknowledge him in all their ways, you know, he's going to direct their path. The list just goes on and on. Are you really hungry and thirsty 
for the word of God. Or let me put it this way. Is God's power being released in your life because of your trust in the promises of God? The promises of God. I think that one of the reasons Jesus hung on the cross and said, man, I'm thirsty, was so that you and I can know that the word that God's given us to direct our lives is the instrument by which he can use to release his power within us. Let's pray together for just a minute. Just let a little bit of quietness settle in. Father, we're 2,000 years removed from the death of Christ on the cross. Yet he still seeks to direct us and to guide us. And the words that he spoke then continue to echo by the power of your spirit to us. God, thank you for why he was there on that cross, that he died in a place, our place, so that we could be forgiven and we could take his place at your side. God, thank you that he really was a man. Thank you that he really did long for you and modeled that for us. God, thank you that he was committed to your word, that he lived it, he believed it, he literally bled it so that we could have confidence in it. You know, God, I think the biggest challenge for many of us right now is just honesty. It's just really being honest about where we stand in relationship to your word. God, do we have the kind of trust in your promises that really releases your power. Help us to answer that question honestly, if nothing else. Even if we answer it and say no, but I don't care, I don't want to change it, that's better than being fooled. Give us wisdom, Father, to truly answer that question honestly. And Father, I'd be, I just wouldn't be honest with what's in my heart, clear within my heart. God, that's what I want for all of us. It's for your power to be released in us by our trust in your promises and your word and your instructions, your truth to us. God, for every aspect of our lives. God, help us to answer the question honestly of do I really hunger and thirst for you. For I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.